Hi, I'm Gary Nall. I'd like to welcome you to a continuation of our ongoing self-empowerment series. I've had an opportunity in the last week to look back at some of the old archival footage that I haven't seen uh, since I actually did the presentation. It goes back 45 years. So this is just a continuation. There have been probably 200. This one is entitled, Repurposing Your Life. Now, what do I mean? I mean that a lot of people, because of the coronavirus and the pandemic and the lockdowns and people's restrictions of their activity, they've had to face many uncomfortable issues. At least most people have. Did they plan ahead? Did they have enough backup food? Did they pay off their credit cards so they, if they had to use their credit cards, most people do, they would have adequate amounts on the card to be able to use it. Um, did they finally say, I've always thought of there was a scarcity of quality time to spend with the people in my life, friends, family members, at least those in your immediate your, your domicile, plus those you could reach over the internet and you could Skype because we're all so busy, my generation in particular, your generation, the baby boomers, there was never enough time for everything, hence we lost balance. But we did a trade-off, and that's not unusual, where we said, okay, at the initiation of our relationship, we have passion and pleasure and joy and exploration. We're like children wanting to go outside each day and say, wow, what a world we live in. Let's explore it. They'd build sandboxes and tree houses and little forts and everything and play. And then the time came when they grew and then the other things were more important. Figure out problems and erector sets and then school, then boys and girls and the embarrassment of, am I okay, am I not okay? And everything done wrong to you could do it right. And then we get into our relationships depending upon which generation we are encouraged to have a family, settle down, have children, find a place to work, preferably some place where your in-laws have worked, family business, or maybe where people worked in a factory, like in Flint, Michigan, or Detroit, or Camden, for generation after generation, going back sometimes 100 years or more. So your life was pretty well set, and you would get together, on Sundays in my family, where they play canasta, the kids would eat in the kitchen, the adults would eat at the big table, we'd go out, they'd give us a quarter, go see a movie, and they would play, they would play canasta. Uh, and that's where they spoke about the issues within the family. Things were predictable, they weren't as complicated. It didn't mean we didn't have problems, we did, but they were dealt with differently. Somewhere in your life, there was always that wise and wonderful oracle that grandfather, grandmother, aunt, or uncle, and sometimes parents, who would be able to sit with us and be once removed, meaning they would detach from the immediate outcome and just simply lay it out. Here's the rules. Here's what you have to obey, not only for yourself and your own well-being and safety, but also for the family or for society. So there was always this interwoven concept that we're all part of a society. We're part of an extended family. So respect that. Don't act out. Don't bring embarrassment to us. Show us what you can do. We're going to back you. Uh, make us proud of you. Now, that all seems positive. In many ways, it is positive. But there's a catch to that. What if the EPA, larger environment, genetics, 
your genes, going back as many as seven generations we know of, can be influenced by how people dealt with issues in life prior to you being born. And all that genetic uh, sequencing is now carried over into your being. So you may have a desire to do A, but you do B. Your natural life force, your natural life energy, your natural proclivities, your natural desire says, I want to be, let's say, an artist. But then people quickly dissuade you of that by saying, well, how are you going to make a living? You know, how are you going to support a family? Then guilt and shame, the bookends of social and parental control come in and you don't want to disappoint them. You want them to do the right thing. And so you say, okay. And they say, but not, not to worry. Do that as a hobby. Remember when we all had hobbies? They were wonderful. And it gave us an opportunity to use our time where there was some value in it. It was a part of a growing process because the day would come when we didn't have those hobbies. We substituted hobbies for relationships. And, and then later, those relationships became families. And then they, all emphasis upon the family. But there was, a, there was something that I don't believe that we've ever discussed enough in our society. And that is, we are very good and to our credit, uh, empathetic, in wanting to help people who are down. We all cheer that person who's got something wrong, terminal cancer, fights back, and we believe they're courageous. And we use terms like, you know, a hero in their own life for the battles they have fought, even if they lose them. And we remember them fondly, in part because they weren't afraid to fight and that battle. And in our generation, the older generation, by the way, just so you know, I'm at a place in East Texas, in the mountains called the Villa, and it's because it's a 1920s villa, and uh, we have our anti-aging clinical study here. We only have another two weeks to go and we're done. And then people go home and continue it at home and we're trying to see can we reverse the aging process at the Sayer level. So we have outstanding scientists who've said, here are the blood markers you must take. So everybody took blood markers and had their exams and their blood pressure and their blood sugar and, and all of their hormone levels taken. Because when these change, then that's proof you've actually objectively uh, changed. If you just say, I feel better, that's subjective. Oh, I had some weight and I lost, that's subjective. But when you can change your telomeres, or when you can show you've created new stem cells that are youth stem cells, not aging stem cells, when we can show that we have changed our biochemistry, then we've done something unique. And that then can help save millions, if not hundreds of millions of lives, because it changes how we perceive the aging and diseasing process. We can therefore prevent diseases of what we call aging, which are actually not of aging themselves, they are a lifestyle. And behind all this is a foundation based upon behavior changing. So when you change your behavior, then you can allow yourself to have a healthier diet or to do juicing or exercise or meditation or journal writing. And so that's what we're doing. We did it once, nine months ago. Now we have to replicate it to make sure it wasn't a fluke. It's the duplication of your original results that says, yes, this is legitimate. No, it's not. And about as low as 67%, as high as almost 80% of all scientific studies, more or less, cannot be replicated, which means something went wrong in the design or the outcome. We want this to go right because a lot of people are suffering in lives and life span are involved. 
But my principle here is not to talk about uh, nutrition or supplements or exercise, but rather what controls our behavior. So even when we're given the right information, we stay intentionally ignorant, which is a concept I came up with about three years ago of why are smart people doing stupid things and good people doing bad things? Why would a nice person intentionally go off a diet they know is helping them and go on one that's diseasing? That couldn't happen unless you hadn't changed to begin with. And that's a different principle uh, that I've also gotten because the principle of intentional uh, neglect is what we don't want to change in our lives, we give ourselves an excuse. And that is, I didn't know. I didn't know smoking was bad, asbestos was bad, DDT was bad, glyphosate bad, genetic engineer was bad. I didn't know anything I did in my life was bad. I didn't know on the political level that you know, I thought all politicians were honest. I thought all bankers cared about, you know, making sure I didn't run out of money and kept my savings safe. I, I thought every, and see, you see, you can apply that to everything that went wrong in your life, intentional neglect. Because with intentional neglect, you automatically get intentionally negative outcomes. There's no good at the end of that process. On the other side of that is intentional awareness, where I... If I'm going to take a coronavirus vaccine, I want to study as a scientist, as a researcher, is my body, I want to make sure nothing's going in it that could harm it. So I'm going to study that. I'm not just going to say, okay, if you say it's okay, I will stay intentionally ignorant of what your biases are, what your economic incentive might be, and just go ahead and give me whatever you want. You're going to make money off of it, and the worst could happen is I die. And that's what happens. Because our society, unfortunately, and I say this regrettably, our society is filled with some very powerful people who own some very powerful corporations whose only interest is making a profit. They're completely amoral in the idea that they don't care how they make their money as long as they make it. If you get sick in the process, our environment gets sick, our environment gets shredded, we have global warming and all the consequences of that because they didn't care about the outcome of the forest they were tearing down the animal production they were creating, creating a greater demand for meat. Because when you see that commercial where you've got Kentucky Fried Chicken sandwiched by two glazed donuts, I mean, who came up with that idea, right? What in there is good for you? Now, I'm a, I'm, I'm a registered dietitian. I'm a certified nutritionist. I'm a PhD in clinical nutrition and public health science. I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Applied Biology and Anti-Aging Medicine for 33 years. I've published in peer-reviewed journals. I've done 44 clinical studies. Prove to me, Kentucky Fried Chicken, that there's good reasons to eat your fried chicken, basted in flour, and then with pure carbohydrate. I'm, I'm just interested, because a lot of people are going to eat it without questioning it. If they see it on television, they don't question, because they're not an authority. The television people are authorities. They're not going to question what they read in the New York Times, the Washington Post. They're not going to question the the people they like on from the left or right on television or radio. Because we become intentionally ignorant to the point where we also are intentionally lazy. Now people think, well, you know, yeah, I see people are lazy. I see people are not exercising. I see people don't exercise their body or their brain. You know, there's no intellectual acumen there. There's like a vacuous uh, crawl space that you try to get in to get a new thought, a new idea and you run up to where you, you can't move anymore. That, that hole just shrinks to where you're trapped. 
So nothing changes in a person. The behavior doesn't change. I said, that's wrong. That's wrong. No, a new thought. People put more discipline into dysfunction than they do into function. More discipline in disease they do in wellness. You have to be very disciplined. You have to have intent. You have to have focus. You have to have an objectification of what you want in order to keep doing the wrong thing. Because I don't believe people are inherently uh, or congenitally stupid. I believe that they are not lazy by accident. They work on it. So everyone else wants to apologize for it, make excuses. You know, well, it's the circumstances, their income. I can show you people who have the lowest income in the world. Let's go to Africa. Let's go to the Bushmen of the Kalahari and see if they are unhealthy or healthy in the most bleak of environments. I can take you to Nepal, which has the highest uh, quote and level of happiness in the world. They're considered the happiest population in the world. Why? The Americans get there, put on a fur coat, and look for a fireplace. You know, it's cold a lot of the year. Well, some of the year. But it's an extremely happy place. Even after they had terrible uh, earthquakes that decimated villages, they still were happy. How is it the people in the Nordic and, and uh, area of the world, Denmark, Sweden, uh, you know, uh, Finland, that whole area, why are they living longer lives than we are? Why are the Spanish people living longer lives? Why are the Italians living longer lives? Why are the Japanese living the longest? And why do they have the better school system? Because their kids still go out and play. They don't go to school early. Remember when we didn't go to school till uh, first grade when we were six years old? Now people want to over-educate their children too early. They don't have time to, time to be with other people to develop some socializing skills or to be in nature. We even eliminated recess. In countries that still provide recess, there's less ADD and ADHD. Oh, you mean it's genetic or it's brain chemical imbalance? No, it's not. You can have some of that from vaccine damage, environmental damage, but most of it comes from boring classrooms, boring teachers, and things that don't interest them. How in the world can a school teacher, and I've been one for 45 years, how in the world can a teacher compete in that classroom to hold the attention when that kid can just touch that computer and everything that they ever want is right there in that second. And how do you compete? Well, how about not allowing the cell phones and the computers in the classroom and how about spending some time as a parent not trying to be a friend of your child but rather to be a guardian? Your coach, that's the best you can be. You have to give your children the tools they need to be able to transcend the linear conditioning socialization that the average kid goes through, living in bubbles, depending upon their income and status and their ethnicity and, and their educational levels. How about a kid just being a kid instead of a little adult trying to live you know, to expectations that are not realistic? Alt for what? And then one day, now they're with a coronavirus, they're in a house or an apartment and they're lonely and they spend all day not exercising, not trying to expand their consciousness, not trying to see what they could do with their life. They're looking at piles of debt. They don't even open up the, the, the debt collectors. You know, this is your student debt. This is your credit card debt. And if you're a parent, this is your mortgage debt. Or the, from the landlord, this is your rent and you're three months behind. And they're thinking, woe is me. How did I get here? Perfect opportunity to re 
retool your life, repurpose it. And therefore, when do we ever stop long enough to exhale our anxiety, stress, incompleteness, and inhale the vitality of conscious living in this moment, to expand that conscious moment from 3 to 5% even greater, where we're mindful of the moment we're in, and this we can handle. What we can't handle is trying to make everything from yesterday important today. <clears throat> Think of how often the limitations of our past has been the only thing that guides us in the moment we're in. So what we feared in the past that we would do wrong, maybe our inner reactions with our parents or our playmates or teachers or at the job, where we felt we were held back or we held ourselves back because we didn't want to make a mistake because somewhere in our childhood making a mistake became a, ah, and then suddenly we were criticized. And as a little kid, you can't intellectualize. You can't say, I'm, I'm taken off. You have to you know, emotionalize it. And that emotionalization becomes a limitation to your growth. Because people don't realize how facial expressions, eye contact, and the velocity and the weaponization of words can really affect a young person, but they do. So now you're carrying all that burden, and now you feel absolutely helpless. Under normal circumstances, what drives a lot of people into depression or anxiety, which is first anger and then unrequited anger, where nothing comes good from your anger, and so you become despondent. What should I do? There's nothing I can do. I'm just one person. What can I do? And then you start looking for the first time because of this crisis, not for the coronavirus now come of that, because most people will survive the coronavirus. Most people will not be infected. And those who are infected, most will have no symptoms because the body's natural immune system will defeat it. The most vulnerable, of course, will be those who have pre-existing conditions, especially older people. And we've made the mistake of not parsing off those who were 80 years old in Italy who died and the average age from, well, then how many of those died of cancer, emphysema, heart attacks, stroke that they already had. They were in nursing homes dying. If you have every single person in nursing home die, and then you say, oh, it was all the coronavirus, it wasn't. They were there to die. You know, and now we're giving it all to them. So the actual number of deaths from the coronavirus will seem, you'll see will be far less. Easier to spread, but not as lethal to the general population. Right now, it's about the same as the annual flu death. But we didn't lock down America because of the flu every year. We have, we have Americans dying every 60 seconds. Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, dementia. Since when did we create a pandemic on that? All right, we didn't. So I think we've approached this whole thing wrong, but how many times in life did we approach our own life wrong? Did we get the ideal job? Did we have, if we could do it all over again, the people we brought into our lives, our friends, our work, the, where we lived, well, we do it again. Depends upon the level of your conditioning and how much you benefited from that, where it was the right choice, or how much it was not. So now we have to repurpose it because if we can't keep going forward because that's like helping someone up because we're empathetic and saying, let's get you well. Let's take you to an AA meeting or let's take you to a counseling. Uh, let's take you to a doctor. 
and or let's take you to a financial consultant because you have all these problems in your life. You're spending money you don't have on things you don't need, creating debt you can't handle, and you're in relationships that are not harmonizing beautiful energy but rather are clashing. And you realize, my God, I can't even get a divorce. I can't get out of this. I got the kids. I got blah, blah. I can't afford to leave. So you create some maladaptive relationship where you survive together, but under very inhospitable conditions. That's not good for anyone. Yourself, because stress eats you alive. Stress kills you. It's a major killer. Cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, adrenaline, all rising. It's like walking around with a five alarm fire going off every second of the day in your brain and you're reacting to it hyper. Think of how hyper anxious we are. Think about how kinetic we are. Think of the lack of patience. In other societies, they'll focus on doing their homework. They'll focus upon having a meal together. Did you ever notice, even in every movie, oh, no time for breakfast, you know, and everybody grabs coffee or a donut or something and rush out there. You never, ever in any film see anyone actually sitting and eating a breakfast, let alone a healthy breakfast. Never. Movies, same way. It's drinking, smoking, drugs, garbage, angry, persona. So what message does that give us, that that's normal? If you start seeing people like John Wayne or other people that you, you know, respect, you suddenly think, well, if he does it, why can't I? So we start mimicking early in life. So then we forget. My parents smoked, my parents drank, and both died at the age of 54, two, a couple years apart. So what killed them? Smoking, drinking, bad diet, lack of exercise, inappropriate ways of dealing with stress? No, their belief systems killed them. That's the number one cause of death, is your belief systems. When you are taught to value something without first deconstructing the myths of it to see if it's legitimate or not. So how do we deconstruct something? First, we ask ourselves, what in my life is transitory? How about everything? Well, if it's transitory, how do I plant permanent roots and permanent everything? You don't. If you do, then you have to go back to almost a thousand years to people, societies, communities that had to stay together. They had to work together. They had to know what they could do as a part of a, a system to survive because literally they wouldn't survive. <clears throat> I was in Italy. I was in the mountains and I stopped off this little hamlet and they have these all through the Italian Alps where you, you'll drive for two, three, four miles and then suddenly you come to a village. The village might have eight, 10, 12, 15 homes. And, but everyone knows everyone, everyone cooperates, and, uh, and you'll frequently have families been there for generation after generation after generation. I stopped at one where the house was 800 years old and the same lineage had lived there the entire time. So boy, and you could smell the old wood, and, and it was just, it was magical for me, because I, I loved having my hands in the soil as an organic farmer, and I loved nature. So it was, I thought it was just perfect. And, but the people were calm. They had a purpose. So then when was the last time that each member of a family asked, what should be the purpose of my life? There was a great, uh, he, was, he was a physician, he was a psychologist, Viktor Frankl. He survived the concentration camps. He was in, I believe, five different concentration camps. And he noted something, and I'll just paraphrase, that 
those who still had meaning in their life, even though they were in a completely destitute environment where people were dying everywhere, those who still carried meaning, greater than their suffering, lived. Those who did not perished. And he wrote some important works in the 1950s and 60s and uh, lectured. Uh, and he, for my generation, he was as important as Rollo May, Eric Fromm, and other critical thinkers. So how often do we ask ourselves in repurposing our life, where do we begin? Well, how about choosing a, a purpose, something that defines us, that we can handle? Stoicism is a very important philosophy. It's never discussed, never used in our society. Do you know what Stoicism is? Okay, does anyone not know what it is? All right. Well, part of the spectrum of Stoicism is where you can't change everything happening out there, like Marcus Aurelius and others who were major uh, contributors to our understanding of, of Stoicism. I can't change everything out there, so I have to change how I perceive it. So you're changing your perception of events, of people, allow you an opportunity to then decide how do you want to work with this? What do you want to do? Also part of stoicism is looking for people who have found solutions where others have not and asking, now, how did you do that? How did you come to that awareness? What can I bring into my life that honors it more than what I'm able to now? How can I deal with circumstances that are out of my control and then you become, uh, you become more grounded in a more meditative mindset. You're not just reacting, you're reasoning. And the one thing I like about Stoicism is the sense of reasoning. In that sense, it has a great deal to do with Buddhism. You know, living in the moment, being present, because this is the moment that counts. You know, you can't keep harping about what happened yesterday because that's living your life looking in the rearview mirror of everything. Well, that's not going to guide you forward. You can't guide forward looking back. And that's what we have to do when we start repurposing our life. And I'll get to that in a moment. But let me give you a good real-life metaphor for repurposing. I don't know how many younger people will appreciate this, but my generation certainly does. There was a time in American history where we made phenomenal cars. The 1930s, 40s, 50s, and it ended in the 60s for all intents and purposes. But if you looked at like a 57 Chevy convertible and all the other, the Corvettes of the 1950s, they were phenomenal. They were pieces of art. And for those of us who grew up, it was like doo-wop, the music that we are inspired to listen to because it connects us with something that was a remarkable moment, the first love of our life, whatever was happening, and that music brings us back there, instantly gravitates to a wonderful moment. It's just opening a window and saying, wow, yeah, 1968, there I am you know, with my daughter. And it brings you back because the music connects us. So I went to an auction down in Florida uh, where I live and have my animal sanctuary where I rescue animals, get them back to life with love and, and health and then find them homes for life or back into the wilds. And there was an auction with about 500 more or less cars. And it works this way. You sign up and they give you a paddle with a number on it, like most auctions. And, uh, and then you go outside and they have this huge field. 
and one after the other are all the cars. And generally beside the cars, there's a, almost always a man. In fact, I've never seen a woman. I know there are women that re, repurpose cars, but in this case, it, that day it was all men. And there were like 500. And they have a little beach chair they're sitting in. They have an umbrella beside it. And they love explaining the cars. And if they've won awards, and a lot of these cars have, you see the uh, trunk is up and you see the awards in the back. Um, and so there was this 57 Chevy convertible that I would later buy. And I was intrigued because it, it was a 100-point restoration. That meant that the guy went to a junkyard, found an old destroyed 57 Chevy, you know, brought the chassis back, and then over the next four to five years, rebuilt it as if it had just come off the assembly line. Everything was perfect. Not only that, but going to places where he'd get the original material that went in there. So when they say 100-point restoration, that means it's just perfect. Everything works. Everything matches. And they turn on the motor, and it's just humming. And uh, so my, my interest was, why are you selling it? Why? And, they, and this is what, this was the reframe that I got over and over again. Well, from the time I leave here, and I'll go back, and in about a month from now, I'll go to junkyards up and down the state, and I'll look for that one car, that one unique vehicle, no matter what it looks like, and I'll buy it for 100 bucks, and I'll get it on a trailer and bring it home, and then I'll put it in my garage, and then each day, at the end of my regular work day or after dinner, I'll go out there and, and I'll spend time on it. Why? Well, because it's the one thing I can do without causing an argument. You know, uh, everybody knows and I'm in the garage. And that's my little space. Like a man cave, right? Now, again, I'm sure there are women who do this. I just, thus far, I haven't met any. And, uh, and I said, but I'm looking at the value. And they put an estimated value underneath at the bid. So that's where they start. Who will give me $65,000, $65,000? Someone will say yes or no. And so this was at about $45,000. And I said, sir, you must have more than $45,000. Oh, he said, I've got about $65,000 in it. So you're going to build something that's a beautiful piece of art. You're going to lose money on it. So you can go do it all over again. He said, I've done this five times. So that, that person had repurposed a car. They took something that was a wreck, and they redid it. In fact, I bought it for $36,000 at the auction. And he now had $36,000. He could go and buy you know, another car and, and re redo it. So I have no right to, to suggest to him that maybe there are other ways. <laughs> maybe you got to deal with what's wrong in your life and out of balance. Uh, you know, because they, and more often than not, they're what I call an adaptive, supportive uh, life energy. They're going, to, they're going to adapt to an environment. They're not going to change it. They make very good parents. They're very loyal. You know, they stay within a very narrow frame of existence. If they go on vacation, they frequently go to the same vacation multiple times. Grand Canyon, things like that. Uh, they are the worker bees of society. Without them, you wouldn't have any of the things you have today. They're the least appreciated, but they're the most important in a society. It's not the person that can finance a skyscraper. It's the people who build it. And these are the people who do all the farming, do all the building. These are the people who make our lives possible.
yet they're given the least credit, and that's unfortunate. In any case, this is one of the ways that they sublimate. Now think of it for a moment. Think of the other ways we sublimate when our life is not fulfilled and we're not, we, we still have that big empty feeling. No matter what we do and how much we do and how responsible we are, there's still a sense of emptiness, incompleteness, this sense of an unrequited ache that only we can understand and feel. It's there. And it will stay there until you liberate your authentic self. But we keep doing everything we thought was our authentic self and we all succeed. I've yet to meet a person that hasn't succeeded. If you're living as a homeless person on the streets for four or five years, you've succeeded. You've mastered how to survive in an inhospitable environment. That takes a great deal of skill. You know, if you survive in prison um, in an extremely hostile environment. So we assume that, that these things don't require mastery. A mother who uh, had a husband who died and now has to take care of three children, that's a rough job. She had to master that. That took commitment and discipline and focus and understanding. You had to moldable, you had to be moldable, uh, ta have talents in order to compensate for what you lacked or what another person would have given you. You have to pick that up for yourself. So we're very overworked, we're very overstressed, and we frequently release our angst by doing some things that are always destructive. Overworking over-committing, over-responsible, over-eating, over-drinking, over-gambling. These are not brain chemical imbalances. These are not diseases. These are inappropriate choices. <clears throat> Therefore, I would challenge the whole notion of trying to medicalize and pathologize bad behavior or inappropriate behavior as a disease so you could profit from it and sell drugs to it. Well, drugs don't change anything when it comes to addictive behavior. There are some drugs that will save your life if you've overdosed, but that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to people get up and say, hi, I'm Bob. I haven't had a drink in three years and eight days. Are you happy, Bob? No one here is happy or we wouldn't be here. We're a disease. We, we, we cannot control ourselves. That's why we come here and reaffirm how much pressure we're under, how much tension we have to live with, how much angst we have to feel to get for 24 hours without going back to that damn drink. Now you got me angry. I'm going to go kick the cat and I'm going to drink. Uh, 16 bottles of diet soda and eat 21 pancakes. Okay, Bob, good for you. Glad to see you're doing well. What if Bob got up and says, you know, nothing wrong with my brain, but a lot's wrong with my behavior. A lot's wrong with my perception of life and me. And I lost my sense of control over my choices. And then I spiraled out of control and kept making excuses for it. It hurt myself, hurt other people, destroyed my family, my relationships, and I hit rock bottom. So I came here just to acknowledge that I don't need to come back because I need to focus upon repurposing my life. I mastered my life. I was successful at what I did. Almost everyone is. But I wasn't happy with it. And my lack of happiness drew me to some very foolish behavior that I intentionally engaged in. No one came up to me one day and put a gun to my head and says, you must take this cocaine, you must take this methamphetamine, you must take this alcohol, you must, you must, you must. No one did that. No one came up and says, you must go to Las Vegas today, gamble everything away, come back and look for excuses to get people to loan you money so you can gamble that too. Chase the dollar that you inappropriately 
wasted. No, those were choices. They were just bad choices. Not a disease. But medicine tries to economically capture everything, pathologize everything, like our kids. Go to France, kids have a good breakfast every morning. Italy, good breakfast every morning. Belgium, good breakfast. All right. Spain, good breakfast. Morocco, good breakfast. Now, how many of those kids are diagnosed with ADD and ADHD and are on Ritalin? How about like 1% compared to what we are? Oh, you mean it's uniquely genetic here in America? No, it's uniquely, it's uniquely uh, conditioned based upon the choices people make or we make for people. So you've got to repurpose, just like the person who thinks they're an alcoholic, they repurpose. When you stop thinking you're an alcoholic and simply say, I'm a human being who made some choices that I shouldn't have. I stayed intentionally ignorant of the outcome. I didn't see this through. I didn't look at my constraints and see that's where it's going to lead me. I didn't look at the dark side of my nature. I didn't resolve any of my angst, my loneliness, my incompleteness, my fears, my insecurity, my uncertainties. I did nothing with that. I shoved it all into a closet and slammed it. I stayed on the positive side of my personality and I worked and I succeeded and then I was still empty. This was the sublimation for my emptiness. But we never ask anyone, are you empty or full of life? What's the purpose of your life? What's the meaning of your life? Because if you're going to start a journey, we all should start the journey by first understanding what it is we want to do. Because my belief is that we've gotten people up off their feet and given them a lot of support, but they're on the wrong road. They're on everyone else's road. We always assume we got you up, now just keep doing what we do. Keep what the collective whole does. Keep what the consensus does. But my road's over there. Oh, no, 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 no. So we help people by enabling them to continue where their dysfunction because we want people normal again. Because being unnormal scares us. It makes us reflect upon what might not be right in our own lives. So instead, we just all go merrily along. We keep picking people up and they go forward with us instead of saying, hold on a second. I lived part of my life on your road, following your rules, being highly socialized, highly conditioned, believing in your truths from your experts, deferring always to someone of more authority and more power. And look at me today. Look at our society today. Look at nature today. Look at all of our institutions. Which institution hasn't betrayed us? The military has betrayed us, the banking, Wall Street has betrayed us, the media has betrayed us, our educational system has betrayed us, our food, Monsanto have betrayed us. You know, who hasn't betrayed us? All right? So I'm not going to do that anymore. Thoreau said, be a good person or a good citizen. I choose to be a good person because I see the limitations of being a good citizen. So no, no thank you. I'm not going to roll up my sleeves and take your vaccine. I'm not going to accept your unconstitutional uh, principles of how some authority figures can dictate their right to spy on us. No, I'm not going to do that anymore. So you first have to understand what you no longer want to be. So the journey of repurposing starts with a deep and private introspection that only you can do. And you can't watch television, be on your computer, stupid phone calls that are meaningless. You can't be keeping yourself busy and distracted and get to that place. You have to get to a place of solitude and now's that time, perfect opportunity, to go inside, to ask yourself these questions. 
So first you start with, if I'm about to begin a new journey to write a new story, instead of sharing my story of woe, then what do I want to be when I grow up in this new magnificent part of my life? What risks am I willing to take? What rewards do I want? What process am I willing to be disciplined enough to go through? What tools do I need? What support system do I need? Because I want my support system to help me, not to enable me. I want to do things my way. I want to be the architect of my own journey. That means I'm going to have to let the balls drop. As many balls as I have to, I'll let them drop. Because so many of our responsibilities, they're just repetitive, ritualistic. We shouldn't, long ago, we shouldn't give them up. And I think it would be healthy if every parent in America had a cutoff date. You know, when you're measuring kids against the doorway, and you know, oh, you're this high, and oh, look, now you're this high. There's a point where you don't have to measure them anymore. There's a point where a mother shouldn't have to do the laundry, you know, the, make the beds, clean the toilets, go buy the groceries, make the food, clean up after the food, walk the dog that was theirs originally. Oh, how cute, and then they're distracted, and you have to take care of it. Where you just say, okay, at this level, you become the person who does your own laundry, at this one, you, and suddenly the kid is learning constructively how to be responsible, even if initially they resent it. Well, no one else. Yeah, well, you're no one else, all right? You're you. Do you want to be like all the other people, or do you want to be uniquely you? Because they're not going to survive in the real world. You will. So you actually coach them into taking responsibilities that you're going to regret, because right now in America, right now, today, there'll be millions and millions of American Men and women, mainly women, who at night, after doing all day long nothing but work, will throw the wash in while it's being washed, take the dog for a walk, clean up, then throw it all in the dryer, and then go in and collapse in bed. Nowhere on her to-do list will she be represented. Her needs won't be taken care of. But how long do you think that's going to go on before her own inner angst and her own sense of, why isn't anyone helping me? Because... You didn't have a system in place that allowed people to be responsible for themselves. Why is it that others couldn't go shopping? Why is it others couldn't help with the preparation? Why they couldn't help with the cleanup? Because you took that responsibility. So don't be angry at people. If you've taken the responsibility now, don't know how to stop it. We like to think things are permanent. Nothing, again, is, everything is transitory. So you just say, okay, now it's your turn. So when you get a certain age, let's say you get 50, you don't have to be any place the rest of your life. So why not be where you should be? Why not be in an ideal environment, doing the work you want to do, learning the skills you need, being around people who are part of your support system that really appreciate you and are there to support you, not live off of you, where you have a chance to do it right. Because when you're doing it right and you're honoring your authentic life and you're repurposing your life without using all the weaknesses and limitations from the past, then you develop new strengths just like learning a word every day and learning a foreign language and learning to play a, an instrument. All this keeps our cells alive. Our cells have been in a restrictive, passive, voyeuristic position. When you read a book, it's passive. When you watch a movie, it's passive. When you listen to music, this classical music, it's passive. When you watch television, it's passive. When you're on the internet with your friends who aren't friends, it's passive. You don't grow being passive. You don't see, you don't see 
Tom Brady going out on the field, now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and having a lawn chair and laying in it on the whole preseason every day saying, I'm a, you know, I've won a lot of ball games, so this year I don't think I don't think I should get in shape. No, I don't think I don't need to. I'm okay. No. No. Honor yourself today and every day. So it's not just a fluke, it's not a fad, it's not a passing phase of euphoric you and, and, and bliss where you, you're seeing something positive. You've heard a speech, you've watched something, read something, and it's motivated you. No, become proactive. You are what you do, not just what you think. Therefore, start doing things every day that create a new set of priorities, a new repurposing of your life which means you have to start, as humbling as it may be, at the base and learn new skills. Now, we have a woman sitting over here. Her name's Marcelle. Uh, she is a, a combination of a botanist, uh, an agriculturalist. Um, uh, she has a background in horticulture. But most importantly, none of that matters if she wasn't impassioned by what she does. She's fulfilled by what she does. And therefore, everything she does, she does with cause and effect. If I do this, this will happen. If I pull out all the weeds, the roses will suddenly pop. And therefore, every day she's able to reaffirm the rightness of what she's doing because she sees positive results every day. In one week, we had a whole hedge that was just green. This week, if you've all watched, it's all orange. It's in front of the house. That's because she weeded it. And when you take out all the competing weeds that are competing for the energy, the soil, and the water, and the air, now it's all aerated. And that beautiful soil that she rebuilt in there with fertilizer is able to cause all this bloom. And so imagine if people at home want to repurpose their backyard, repurpose their basement. You could put a hydroponic house uh, for your own needs. You could grow 200 plants every 30 days more than what you could even eat. You could give it to your friends, family, your churches, uh, in your basement, in your attic, in a garage, in one room of the house. So therefore you would be food sufficient. You could grow blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, strawberries. You could grow uh, avocados, which is actually a fruit. You could grow uh, oranges and lemons and limes in, in that environment, in your home. You could grow sprouts and microgreens on a counter. You could, you could have a house that's just filled with live energy of which you then can consume. Or you can go and consume that Kentucky Fried Chicken with the two glazed donuts, you know, and then try to get out the front door. Uh, so these are the things you can repurpose a place. You can repurpose your life. But you can't do it if you stay stuck in the resistance of all things that create discomfort. Everything that I do is discomforting. Now, what I'm going to share with you, I'm not sharing because of ego or bragging, because I don't do that. I just want to use myself as an example. Um, I was invited once down to um, the New York University uh, Film School um, to give a presentation, which is an honor. And there's only two really famous film schools in America, the one at UCLA and the one at in New York University. And so they had a, a short, like 20 minute clip of my different films, maybe 50 of my films. And afterwards, you know, the guy was saying that I had won, you know, all these awards. And 
one of the students says, did you go here? I said, no, I never went to film school. Where did you go to school? Well, my, my filming, I never took a class. Well, who was your mentor? I've never had a mentor. I've never read a book. I've never read an article on filming. What? Well, how'd you do it? Well, because I had a vision of what I'd like to see. And I simply set a camera down, and my first uh, camera was a little, little tiny camera, and my light was one of those little grow lights I was holding like this as I'm filming. <laughs> True story. And I said, now, I said, so let us not conflate two issues. The desire to see your imagination put into action versus the need to be validated by how to do it by experts. And well, that's unusual. I said, I don't think it's unusual. I think that if you talk with many documentarians, as I do at film festivals, you'll find that almost all of us have something in common. What motivates us, because we don't make money, it costs us a lot of money to do a film, a documentary, is our desire to share something with the world that they didn't know. In other words, these are gifts of insight. And I said, you don't need a degree to do that. You just need a directed and disciplined passion. Cause and effect, learn as you go. Same way, I taught myself gardening and had the first certified organic teaching classes up in Stone Ridge, where it, classes where people could come every weekend, and they did by the thousands over the years I had the uh, fertiler farm up in Stone Ridge. And people learned. But when I got there, it was called Stone Ridge because it was all stones, all stones, big shale, and nothing grew. So every, all my neighbors, all, I, I met all my neighbors. I said, I'm a good neighbor, and I just want you to know, I'm, you know this is my first farm. I couldn't afford much. It was an old 50-acre farm that was all broken down and ratty. And I said, uh, do any of you grow? Oh, no, you can't grow anything up here. And they were right. They're absolutely right. You couldn't grow anything. But then six months later, I had the finest-looking organic garden you could imagine. I had topsoil that thick because no one thought to go to the pond, drain the pond, you've got hundreds of years of muck in there, take a simple dredger, bring it all up, put it in a pile, that pile was 20 foot high, or not 20 foot, about 12 foot high, and 20 foot wide, and probably 100 yards long. And for four months it just drained. And then when it drained enough, I drove it bucket by bucket over across the street, and that was the building up. So. They were right, but I was right. Remember, we're all going to be right. It can't be done, Gary. You're right. I'll do it. I'm right. The difference is the outcome. Right? They all said you couldn't break a four-minute mile. The human body cannot run past her in four minutes, and Bannister did it, 358. And suddenly other people did it. What were they waiting on? For someone to prove it. That shows how powerful the mind is when we don't believe something's possible. You can't heal, then you believe it. I can't heal. You can heal. I believe I can heal. Big differences in what the attitude will do to the cells of the body. So in repurposing, believe in yourself. Believe in what can be done. And then um, I did, up on my website at, at prn.fm, I have 16 careers, 16, that I've mastered. Not one, 16. So as investigative journalist, 700 stories, a filmmaker, and all these uh, author of over 100 books, many bestsellers. I've never had a writing class, yet I was a 
I was a ghostwriter for the Writers' Letter Agency under a famous uh, radical feminist. She, I was 22 and she was 78. And she hired me, my pay was once a week she would spend a half hour working on my work and in return I worked every night for four hours on her work, including her famous authors. And she, she was known for being one of the greatest editors. So all the top publishing houses wanted her as an outside editor. And that's when they really didn't have outside editors. All the editors worked for Simon & Schuster Random House. She was the exception. But she had a lifetime of insight and experience, especially as a social activist. So it was a wonderful, wonderful time for me to absorb. I was just a naive, innocent kid from West Virginia, didn't know a whole lot. Certainly wasn't the brightest guy in the room, but I was learned humility so I could learn to do things, not be afraid. And because no one taught me to be afraid, stupid me, I did stuff, right? I tried writing an article. I tried writing poetry. I tried writing, you know, no one told me not to where I grew up. That part they left out. Gary, in high school, you can be anything you want. And I believed them. And when I saw other people, almost like the invasion of the body snatchers. People go to bed one night, they're normal, the next day they wake up and something's different, right? Same face and figure and voice, but something's different. And uh, it was that pod they left in that room. Well, I saw that growing up when all of us believed we could do anything in high school and we were encouraged. But the day high school was over, we had to become adults then. We had to grow up, we had to fit in. And I saw that because my father said, I don't want you staying here in Parkersburg. I said, why? He said, you've had a wonderful you know, childhood. You've grown up. You know, you've, you've seen how life works at, at one level. But many of the people who are not going to go to college here, which is the majority, they will no longer do the things they did or believe in the things. They're going to, they're going to solidify into their parents. And I saw that over the summer. And boy, did that teach me a lesson. So come the fall, that's when I went to New York. And then I came back from New York. After three months, I'd worked at the Institute of International Education at the UN. I'd worked for Montgomery Wards for three months. It was a business college, a Mount State College business co-op, the first they had ever done, where you're not just learning in a classroom, they put you out into the real world. They put you in industry, Kaiser Lumen is a research and speech analyst, and business, Montgomery Wards, and in government, at the UN and the Institute of International Education. So I had a chance to learn and then had to write, you know, theses on each one of these, the pros and cons, what we're taught versus what is the reality. All those were dysfunctional places, by the way. And wow, did I see people who had just solidified a position of power within an institution and were going to stay there till they retired. So I said, Dad, you were right. So I stayed there and I went to Mount State Business College. I graduated with a degree in business administration. That helped me. If I had not gotten that degree, if I'd have gone off to the university like all my buddies, uh, I would have failed a long time ago because all of them failed, every one of them. And why'd they fail? Because no one told them what happens when you're monotheistic, when you have one goal, one perception, one reality, you master that, then what happens when automation comes and you no longer have your job? And uh, the visas where they bring in people with PhDs who are 24 years old, 25 years old, working for 30,000 years where you've gained seniority after 25 years at 180,000 and you're exposable, boom. 
uh, ex expendable, and now they hire this person. And that's happening by almost 80,000 people per year and has been for a long time, millions of jobs lost. And what about automation and, 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 and uh, artificial intelligence and now transhumanism? So when you add in all the things that are competing with the worker, the worker has no chance, no chance. With a few professions, that's why I'm not recommending everyone go to college or university. I'd rather see them do something in trades that at least you'll have a chance to survive and make a quality life. So everyone's at home now angst-ridden because they don't know to repurpose their life. They don't know, okay, you were working at this company. That company's not coming back. It's gone. So don't wait. Get up off the, uh, off the beach because the tsunami wave's coming. All right? What we've seen up to this point is just the fear of the disease. Now we'll see the reality of the economic collapse of America and the world. So you've got to repurpose yourself. You have no choice. If you don't repurpose, then go out and buy a merit badge that says, I'm a victim of my own hubris. Because it's coming and it's going to be hard. Wow. My heart goes out to all those people who are just, they're choosing intentional neglect. The jobs will come back. Someone will flip on the light. No, they won't. In New York City, before the crisis, there was a 34% Empty stores in all five boroughs. Now it's going to go up to around 50% or higher. Now, I've been a small business person in New York since 1967. And I can tell you, it's never been this brutal. You're going to see bankruptcies that flood the system more than at any time, including the Great Depression. Right now, we have an acknowledged 31 million unemployed in the last eight weeks. That's only the official amount. How about the 90 million who already were fully working at one time, lost their jobs, ageism, discrimination, and now can't get unemployment benefits and hence are not a part of the figure. The real figure today is probably around 35% unemployment, not 19 or 20%. So we're going to have a thousand people looking for every job there is. I filmed some people. Uh, this was also one of those clarion moments. I had heard, but had not yet verified, that over in Titusville, which is near Cape Canaveral, Orlando, that area, on the east coast, northeast coast of Florida, there were a lot of unemployed people, veterans, and no one was sharing their stories. So I went over there, took my camera crew, didn't know where they were, and then was asking at a shelter, and they said, oh yeah, we have some people come here from, they're up there and they give some directions. So it was just a regular neighborhood, but there was a vacant lot. And there was woods behind the lot. And it turned out that three acres was owned by someone who allowed the veterans to camp inside there. You couldn't see anything from the outside. So when I'm walking in with my camera crew, I see a coral snake over on the right. Everything poison ivy and poison oak everywhere. And then we went in about 50 feet, and there was a little pup tent. And there was a guy who half of his body was out of the tent and the other half in. It was like a kid's pup tent. It wasn't a big tent. It was small. And he had a zipper down here. So... It was 10 o'clock in the morning. I said, friend, are you okay? And then he opened it up, and, and I could see he had blood on his chest here. I said, T-shirt. I said, you're bleeding. He said, I know. And he opened up, he lifted up his T-shirt, and it was all infected. And I said, you have an infection. You should go to the hospital. He said, I've been to the hospital. I had stents put in. And he opened up this pocket, and he pulled out a crumbled piece of paper, and he handed it to me. I opened it up, and it was prescription for antibiotics. It was $72. He 
is I know what I should do, I just don't have any money to do it. On the side he had two cans of beans. He had his shirts neatly put together, he had his underwear neatly put together. His space was neat, he said, I just don't have any money. And the VA says this is not militarily uh, created, therefore they're not helping me. And I said, well, tell me your day. He said, well, I walk over two miles to the beach because they have toilets there so I can use the toilets. You know those toilets that are on the beach for the people on the beach and, and there's a shower outside that people use to wash the sand off. I use that, you know, to take a bath. And because the salt water is so good for you, I go in and I said, no, salt water is loaded with bacteria and infections. That will increase the infection, not help it. And he said, then I go to a place called the Daily Bread, which is a wonderful place, by the way. Absolutely should be supported. And this guy doesn't get a penny from the state, local, or federal government. But he feeds, was about 100 people, now it's around 400 people a day. Now it's probably double that. Plus he has some bathrooms there and he has some clothes that he gets that have been washed so you can go through if you need some clothes. And uh, that's where I found out all these other veterans. And then coming back, walking back, which is again about four miles, there's, I saw that there was a, a veterans park. And he said, well, the veterans park is for veterans, but not if you're homeless. If you're homeless, you'll get arrested for sitting in a veterans park. I saw so much that was wrong with our society on that one trip. 16,000 homeless vets up around Titusville. No, no utilities, no toilets, no food. They have to go and get it free. No one rehabilitating, no one helping them, post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are the people who went to war, the Iraq War, the first Iraq War in 1991, and then the second Iraq War in 2003, or Afghanistan, and society's forgotten them. They don't fit back in society because post-traumatic stress disorder creates a very uh, spastic and erratic emotional behavior. In any case, I did a documentary, and it's called um, American Veterans Forgotten and Betrayed. And uh, I helped support their efforts. And uh, needless to say, I, I didn't allow that guy to uh, stay out. I got him into a motel. I said, I'm paying this for a month. Here's your prescriptions, your money. And I never followed up, uh, but my hope is that he, is, he survived but he wouldn't have survived. He'd end up with septicemia. Another person dead, and today they'd say it was coronavirus, right? No, it was abject neglect by a society that uses people and then spits them out. Doesn't care about the consequences of their beliefs. So when repurposing your life, remember, repurpose your life now when you have a chance because in that same community, but in a different area, there was a park and I was told about this by one of the vets. And Cape Canaveral had been doing a lot of layoff over the previous several years. And I went there, and it was very quiet. And I could see there were like 10 cars around this wooded area. So I walked over to one. And it was a Cadillac Escalade. And as I walked up the side, I saw there were four people. And this was in February. It was a little chilly that day. It was in the 50s. And I walked up, and there was a family and they were surprised to see me and I looked over and they were boiling a, a noodle soup on the radiator. And, uh, and they were embarrassed and I said, uh, you know, I'd like to have you, well, we're not gonna be filmed. I said, fine, I won't film you, but I need to know your story. They were both had master's degrees, both had worked for uh, 
the Cape Canaveral, Nassau, both had really high incomes, like 160 or so thousand dollars plus benefits, and both were laid off. But they didn't want to change their lifestyle for their two teenage daughters' sake, they told me. Because the daughter said, well, if people knew that mom and dad were unemployed, we would lose all of our friends. So for a year and a half, they kept the facade up by having their kids go to school when they had no house. You know, and uh, they were living in the car. When they had enough money, they would rent a hotel room or motel room. The mother did cleaning, and the father was one of those guys that dried the cars in a car wash, making $10 an hour. And I said, but how'd you go from there to here? He said, I waited too long to realize I was not the only person who had been affected. I was waiting for that $160,000 job to come back. And then when I was told, hey, friend, you got a 1,000 people looking for that same job who are willing to work for $40,000. Well, I'm not going to do it. And he was angry at himself because both he and his wife kept spending money. He even said that one, at one point they went to an annual auction you know, that people have, and he wrote a check for $5,000 and when he only had 9000 in the bank, his last money. For what? to try to show people they were still part of their community because they said when they was finally tapped out and the girl said that none of our friends will speak to us. Well, they were never your friends then, were they? You know? And, but again, remember, that's, that's how kids are being taught. It's what you own. It's your position in society. It's the stuff that you can show. It's how careless you can be with going to a mall and spending someone's money on a credit card without any thought of being fiscally responsible. And I said, so understand that you brought a lot of this on yourself. And they're aware of that, but they haven't repurposed their life. They're still feeling like victims. When you feel like a victim, you become a victim. And then you start to put a straitjacket on and you start to bound yourself and put duct tape, and then you're just living and seething. And that's not how you grow. You can grow quantitatively by simply liberating yourself. So you bring people into your life that are positive. You determine what you want to do. You begin to develop new skills and take your time and be patient because everything you're going to do, you're going to make a mistake at, and that's fine. But at the end of this, you will have new careers, new opportunity in places you can afford to be and a sustainable existence because probably half the American population within the next 24 months will be unemployed, angry, sick, uh, completely bankrupt, and, and feeling overwhelmed. And then we're going to see some crazy behavior because you can, only, you can only have people live in constraint for so long and then when their children don't have any food and we now have almost 20 million children who are food insecure and 15 million Americans who are food insecure. And when the government doesn't care about you, and they don't, and when no one's going to come and feed you unless it's a charity or food kitchen, and they won't, uh, then, then you're on your own. Then suddenly that big reality happens all at once. And part of you says, why wasn't I prepared for this? Well, you know, when did you stop long enough to ask yourself, what is the reality of the world you're living in? So as a result, we attack what we fear. Unfortunately, we attack our insecurities instead of understanding them. You can't attack something and appreciate what you're attacking. You should go to neutral emotionally, not personalize everything, and say, now, let me deconstruct 
what I was living through to see which is legitimate and which was not, which was conditional and what was of my own free choice. Right? So you have to do this whole deconstruction to reconstruct a new life. Also, are we able to see everything every day in our life with honesty? Because if you can't see what is honest, then how are you going to be honest in the choices you make? So stop compromising so that you get the short-term gain, but then you're living with a deception, a delusion, an incompleteness of self. So just be honest about all things, even if you're the only one. But don't accept something that's not honest. I don't read the New York Times. I don't watch television because it's all dishonest to varying degrees. And these are not dumb people. These are very smart, educated people. But along the way, in the last 30 years, major industries have captured them. Well, if major industries have captured the government and its agencies and the media, then where do we stand of getting anything that's completely transparent and open? We don't. So what do you value? And only put your energy in that which you honestly value. Don't support that which has no intrinsic value. Repurpose with value. Repurpose with integrity. Repurpose with honesty. Repurpose with discipline. Repurpose with meaningful dialogue. Repurpose by what you can control instead of others controlling you. Never put yourself in a financial position where you are at the you are working at the behest of others who have the control over you. Stop multitasking. Stop juggling all these balls. Repurpose with meaningful attitude and focus. When you look at something and say, I need to get this done and done right, whether it's your body, being in shape, then discipline yourself to eat only foods that create health. Don't compromise. Don't have some good, some bad. It doesn't work. So when you repurpose, have a much higher ideal and standard. Make everyone rise up to the level of your awareness and your lifestyle or your quality of life. Don't come down to where they're at because then you're right down below where you were before, at where you were before, and that's where you had your problem to begin with. Why would you want to return to that? Why would you want to return to loneliness, emptiness? Why would you want to return to absolute social control over your existence? Why would you want to control, not control your own body, your mind? That's the purpose of repurposing. I believe that we will have millions of Americans now who will actively seek to repurpose their life because they know that the old life did not serve the purpose of bringing a sense of authentic awareness to their own uniqueness. Thank you for listening.